morning. We're going to be continuing our study in the book of Judges today, and we're going to be finishing up Gideon's story. We're going to see that he has been so filled with pride. And as you just saw in this video, pride is so deceptive. Pride is, is such a, a dangerous thing. It's just, it's absolutely poisonous. But it's, it's a very subtle poison, isn't it? Because it usually doesn't start with ill intentions or ill will. It usually starts with something good, meaning to do something good. Uh, but ultimately, there is always a very real and a very present danger at least a very strong temptation that pride will blind us from seeing our own weaknesses, and it'll blind us from seeing other things, including seeing and experiencing, fully experiencing the sovereign grace and power of God. It'll blind us from seeing his hand at work in our lives, because there's that part of us who is, you know, when we're overcome with pride, we, we become somehow thinking that we deserve whatever we've been blessed with. Several years ago, Tiger Woods openly confessed to cheating on his wife, sharing the bed with multiple other women. And it was shocking to hear such an open and, and candid confession from a professional athlete. Usually they try to put some kind of spin on it. Usually they try to pretty it up a little bit. But it was refreshing when he did it. It was refreshing to see the transparency that he was able to demonstrate, unlike so many other people, he demonstrated such transparency, such brokenness, and it was so refreshing to hear that from someone who was quite accustomed to hearing nothing but praise and, and, and all, all that type of stuff from the media, from the public. As a result of his confession, he lost his marriage. As a result of his confession, he lost millions of dollars worth of endorsements, and he also lost the praise of a lot of the public. And in fact, his golf game has never been the same ever since. So what was it that led the man, who was perhaps one of the greatest golfers of all times, to do what he did, to cheat on his wife? He talked about that in the aftermath of his confession. He said this, quote, I knew my actions were wrong. Wow. That's candid. I knew my actions were wrong, but I convinced myself that normal rules don't apply. I felt that I had worked hard my entire life, and I deserved to enjoy all the temptations around me. I felt I was entitled. End quote. Man, how's that for some brutal honesty? Man, he, he wasn't trying to cover anything up. But he recognized that he had a problem with entitlement. Entitlement is so closely tied to pride. It, it too, entitlement too, this, this attitude of entitlement is, is extremely dangerous. And you might say, well, you know, I'm not a professional golfer who makes millions of dollars a year. In fact, I don't make millions of dollars a year doing anything, so I don't have to worry about feeling entitled. That's not me. I don't fit the profile. But the truth is you don't have to be a mega star golfer. You don't have to be a millionaire you don't even have to be a thousandaire, I guess, to be at risk of feeling a sense of entitlement. The only qualification is that you be a living, breathing human being. Who among us doesn't at least feel tempted to feel like we deserve a better life? Who among us doesn't at least feel tempted to feel like we deserve a bigger paycheck, more respect from other people, less hassle from other people, more freedom to do as we please. At the very least, 
Every one of us is tempted to feel entitled. But the consequences to giving in to this temptation are absolutely catastrophic. Just ask Tiger Woods. You could tweet him. He probably won't respond. If you don't have him in your quick dial, yeah, he's a little bit difficult to contact, as I've discovered this week. I'm just kidding. I haven't tried to contact him. But this is the thing we see happening in the life of Gideon, too. So as we take a look at the life of Gideon, as his story concludes, remember that this is what he's struggling with as well. You know, when we first met Gideon, he was more of a worrier than he was a warrior, if you think about it. He was, he, was a, he was afraid. He was hiding in the wine press, right? Threshing wheat in a wine press. But God raised him up to be the next judge to deliver Israel from oppression to the Midianites this time. Sadly and unfortunately, Gideon was absolutely consumed with pride after the 300 the army of the 300, that God had whittled down to 300 so that they would see it's not you winning this war against 135,000 other men, it's me. But Gideon was filled with pride after they were granted victory by God's sovereign promise against the Midianites. And what we saw in our previous lesson was that success can very easily tempt us to take credit for what we do, to make us feel entitled and prideful, and that's exactly what happened to Gideon. And because he'd become so consumed, so filled with pride, he suddenly felt entitled. He felt entitled to glory. He felt entitled to honor and respect and admiration from the people. Even though their victory was nothing but the unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor and grace of God. And while the world will tell us to follow your heart, The Bible instructs us to guard our hearts. Gideon didn't, and so he became prideful. And he starts developing this sense of entitlement. And when all is said and done, Gideon's story is not a story on how to lead a victorious life. To the contrary, his story concludes as a lesson on how to absolutely destroy your life, how to blow your life up. Because as we're going to see today, that's exactly where his story leads. Having just killed these two kings who had murdered his brothers, he had probably witnessed it. That's probably why he was so fearful at the beginning. And having just wreaked, or sought vengeance and extracted vengeance on these two kings, Gideon's wrath may have been put to rest a little bit. But as we'll see today, he never becomes a godly leader. The last thing we saw Gideon do was kill these two kings and take the ornaments from the necks of their, camel, of their camels. What significance did that have? Well, we're going to get to that today. So the story continues in verses 22 and 23. Judges chapter 8. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son, and your grandson also, for you have saved us. You have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Notice, first of all, he doesn't try to correct them. He doesn't try to say, I wasn't the one who won that war. He doesn't offer any sort of correction at all. He just says, "Uh, the, the Lord will rule over you. I'm not going to. It is such a horrible thing and tragic thing when God's people desire to look and operate just like the world. 
There are scores of, of leadership books out there about how to manage a business, how to be a CEO, how to you know, do this and that. And I'm always a bit flabbergasted, confused, maybe a little bit discouraged, maybe a little bit concerned when I see or, or hear a pastor reading those books because the church is never, ever to be run the same way that worldly businesses are run. You know, it's so easy for us to, to look at somebody like Steve Jobs. You know, he was just, he was heartless. He had no emotion. He just made decisions, good decisions, but took all the emotional, you know, garbage out of there. And it's so, it's so easy for us to look at people like him or, or Donald Trump and, and think highly of them because of their ability to just remove all emotional sentiment out of making decisions. You know, they don't like you or they think the company will be better off without you for whatever reason, you're fired. Just, you're fired. Plain and simple. Straight to the point. It's not convoluted or distorted by any emotions. It's just, this is what we're doing. It's strictly business, as they say. And sadly, there are plenty of churches out there that are being run by men who try to adapt those same business principles. And their churches are places where heads will roll, so to speak, and that's just the way it is. I was reading the story of one pastor, one very well-known pastor, who met the president of Amway as his church was ballooning into a megachurch. And after, and after that, he started reading all these worldly books on leadership. And it wasn't long before he concluded that he didn't actually need to shepherd everybody in his church. All he needed to do was shepherd the people who were shepherding people who were shepherding people. All that leads to him. That's a top-down approach adopted straight out of corporate America. That is never the way a church is supposed to be run. That's not the way God's people are supposed to be managed. That's not the job of the shepherd. That's not a biblical model for the church. So why did the Israelites want to have somebody like Gideon as their king? Because that's how it's done in the world. That's how all the nations around them were doing it. That's how all the other nations were being run. That's how the world was being managed. But that's not how God's people are to be managed. It is a horrible tragedy when people who belong to God, God's people, want to look and operate just like the world. Last week we saw that Gideon was actually the first judge, not only to murder his fellow countrymen, but to torture his fellow countrymen. And now for the first time, we see the people asking the judge who has just delivered them to be their king. But God hadn't set them up to be reigned over by an earthly king. He, God, was supposed to be the one who reigned over them. But they have continually rejected God. They have continued, despite all the oppression, to continually turn their hearts away from God. Why? Because they wanted to be just like the world. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 17 to 19, that God allowed Saul to be king over Israel only because they had rejected God so many times. He finally says, okay, let me give you what you want. We read this. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, quote, I brought Israel up out of Egypt and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all your calamities and distress. 
And you have said, no, set a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. He's going to give them exactly what they asked for. And of course, Saul was not exactly a great leader, certainly not godly. God gave them what they wanted. And with a king, they were going to be run just like the nations around them, just like the world. But the nation of Israel would continue to become more and more and more of a godless nation while this was happening. And if you know the story of King Saul, you know that God didn't give the people of Israel what they wanted as a means of rewarding them. He was doing it to discipline them, draw them back to himself. Gideon responds to this request with an eternal truth that we would do well to embrace even today. It's a timeless principle. The Lord will rule over his people. The Lord will rule over his people. With that established, Gideon and the Israelites completely submitted themselves in obedience to the Lord, and they all lived happily ever after. Amen. No, that's not what happened. Gideon reveals that intellectually... In his mind, he knows that it's the Lord's place and only the Lord's place to rule over them. But while he knows that intellectually, what we're going to see today is that his heart has not exactly accepted this truth. You see, Gideon wasn't the only one who failed to learn the lesson of the 300. The entire nation of Israel failed to learn the lesson of the 300. So why do they want Gideon to be their king? Because they're thinking, he's the one who beat the Midianites, right? But he didn't. And he doesn't even correct them on that. God's the one who beat them. So let's ask that question again. Why do they want Gideon to be their king? It's really simple. They didn't want God. They'd rejected God. They hated God. They'd rejected God's method of ruling over his people. They'd rejected God because they wanted their country to be the most powerful nation on earth by their means, because of them, because of who they were. And so they refused to humble themselves before the Lord and learn. Gideon had been raised up by God, but his purpose was never, ever to replace God. And he knew it. Rather, Gideon had been raised up. He'd been anointed by God for the sake of leading his people out of oppression and leading them back to faithfully serving and living for God. But they don't want that. And truthfully, neither does Gideon. The desire of the people to be under the rule of man rather than under the rule of God is really just another disguised effort at achieving self-sufficiency. They just want to be self-sufficient. God can be plan B or something like that. When we get oppressed, you know, we'll call on God. But until then, you know, why don't we just do things all on our own, do things our way? They didn't want to need God. Now, before we continue, there is one final thing that's worth noting, and that is that this is the last time that we see Gideon remembering, at least on an intellectual level, who God is, what God's rightful place is, and what his rightful place is. So we continue. Verse 25. Oh no, this is Judges chapter 21. This is is the sum of the book. We can't forget how the whole book is summed up. It's all summed up in the very last verse of the Bible, or of the book of Judges. It says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king 
And so they're just doing whatever they want. That's what they're doing here. It is a horrible tragedy when the people of God want to look, want to operate, and want to live just like the carnal, worldly, unregenerate people that we're surrounded by. Here's the truth. We we always act in accordance with what we really, really believe about reality, including and maybe especially our beliefs about who God is and who we are. That's why it's so important. That's why it's so important that we continually saturate ourselves with the gospel because we don't want just an intellectual understanding of who Jesus is or his position and our position. Even the devil has that. He's got an intellectual knowledge of who God is and who he is. Rather, we should desire that it penetrate our hearts to the very depths, to the point that there's nothing that we can do, there's nothing that anybody can do to prevent it from playing out in our lives. And if you're wondering why I say that Gideon's heart knowledge is disconnected from his head knowledge, uh, why I say he's got this disconnect going on between his heart and his mind, it's revealed in the very next thing he says. Verses 24 to 26. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and beside the collars that were around the necks of the camels. So in his mind, intellectual knowledge, Gideon knew that the Lord was supposed to be the one to reign sovereignly over his people. But when we look at what Gideon does here, when we look at his actions, when we look at the very next thing that he says, we see that his heart knowledge is at odds with his head knowledge. See, heart knowledge is is reflected in, in how we act, how we behave, the decisions we make. That's what the heart is. It's the source of everything that we do, all of our actions, whereas the mind is just where we know things. And when there's a disconnect, look out. So we see that Gideon's heart knowledge is contradicting his head knowledge. With his head knowledge, he knows what is true. He knows that the Lord is the one who's supposed to reign over his people. But his heart is crying out, I deserve to be treated like a king. I deserve all the glory and the honor and the respect of a king. What a hypocrite. But be careful, because he's just like us. Because what hypocrites you and I are as well when our actions don't line up with what we claim to believe in our hearts. First Gideon says, I can't be your king. But then he immediately asks for all the golden earrings that they got from the spoils of war, in essence saying, I deserve to be rewarded for what I've done for you. Gideon didn't learn the lesson of the 300. Gideon didn't want to be called the king. He just wanted to be treated like one. And not only does he want to be treated like one, he's going to start acting more and more and more like one. Why? Because he feels entitled. He thinks that after the victory, this is what he deserves. This is what he has earned for himself. Further, not only does Gideon covet Glory, honor, respect, admiration from people. But now we see that he covets earthly riches. Like a king who's 
exacting a tax or a tribute of honor from his peasant citizens. Gideon milks as much financial gain from his fellow countrymen as he could at this moment, even though he didn't need it because God had blessed him with sufficient riches of his own as a result of the battle. And the people give him what amounts to between 45 and 50 pounds of golden earrings. 45 to 50 pounds of golden earrings. You know how many earrings that would take? Thousands and thousands and thousands. More, more than I could fit on an ear, you know, just saying. Because in their eyes, and they're, they're doing it because in their eyes, Gideon is the one who's won the battle. They say, we'll do it willingly. We're happy to do this for you because you're the one, Gideon, who delivered us. You're the one who won this battle. Apparently nobody Learn the lesson of the 300. Nobody realizes that the victory could only be attributed to God, even though God made it as obvious as he possibly could. This is how blind spiritual blindness really is. And you'd think that you know, the story couldn't get any more crazy. It does. It gets even more crazy as we continue. Look at the next verse, verse 27. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Aphra. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Where are we at this point, uh, geographically speaking? Where, where, Where is this? It's back in Gideon's hometown. This is where he started. This is where Gideon tore down the altar that was dedicated to the worship of Baal and sacrificed the bull in his very first act of obedience to the Lord. And here he comes in. And he defiles it. He defiles it with an act of self-exaltation. He takes those 45 to 50 pounds of gold. He takes the purple cloaks that the kings wore. And he makes an ephod out of it. What's an ephod? Well, we first learn of the ephod back in uh, the book of Exodus, where Aaron, as the high priest, was being told how to have his garments designed. Uh, In other words, this was something that was only to be worn by the high priest. This was something that Gideon wasn't exactly qualified to wear. Now imagine just for a second that there was something that that I, as a pastor, was supposed to wear uh, to designate me as, as pastor, you know, whatever. You can find churches where the clergy wear certain types of clothes, certain types of robes, uh, sometimes, I don't know, certain types of hats uh, or ornaments that designate them as the leader of the church. But now imagine that, that there is this, this something that's only worn by pastors. And let's say that the top-ranking official in our army decided to make one of those for himself to wear. That's basically what Gideon has done here. And while we can't be exactly certain as to why he did it, we do know what he did with it. He put it on display in his hometown, most likely to remind the citizens of what he had done and how he, therefore, was deserving of their honor, their respect, their admiration. In his book, Brave New World, author Aldous Huxley writes this. He says, quote, The greater a man's talents, the greater his power to lead astray. It is better that one should suffer than that many should be corrupted, end quote. We see that Gideon was indeed a leader. There's no question about that. He, he was a leader. 
and maybe a great one by the world's standards. But he has, instead of leading the people of Israel back to God, he's led them away from God. He's corrupted all the people with this move as the ephod becomes an idol that draws people away from God. It says that all of Israel whored after it. They prostituted themselves after it. If, if, you, if you want to come up with, with a picture of that, I mean, we all know what prostitutes do. They stand out on a street corner and just wait for the next person to come by, looking for anything, anyone. And that's what they're doing while they're in this covenant relationship with God. And this is an uncomfortable phrase. You know, I understand. I, I get it. It's, it's an uncomfortable phrase. It's maybe PG-13. But we need to understand that Israel was in a covenant relationship with God. And so this idol, that's what the ephod becomes, it's really no different than any other false god that the people give their hearts to, turn their hearts to, you know, turning their hearts to, to whatever that is, this idol, instead of turning their hearts to God. Their unfaithfulness to God in, in, in this circumstance reminds me kind of of the, the golden calf, the story of the golden calf, doesn't it? I mean, when, when Aaron takes all the gold of the people and he throws it into the fire and poof, out comes this golden calf and they just start worshiping it and Moses comes down and he's like, what are you making a golden calf for? He's like, I didn't mean to, I just threw the gold in the fire and poof, out came this golden calf. And the people are worshiping this golden calf instead of worshiping God. History really does repeat itself if we're not careful. So by hanging up this ephod publicly, Gideon has refused to be humble. He's, instead of using his position to serve God's people, he uses it to fortify his own position. Rather than leading them to repentance, he leads them to idolatry. Gideon wanted power. Gideon wanted glory and honor and respect, and he wanted it so badly that he was willing to use any means necessary to get it, including God. And thus, while a judge's responsibility was to lead the people to repentance, to turn them away from unfaithfulness, Gideon leads them deeper and deeper into unfaithfulness. The act of creating this Ephod, it seems really harmless on the surface, but this is absolutely disastrous. It's not just a snare for Gideon himself, it becomes a snare for his entire family. It's a stumbling block for all of them. It leads them all to sin, his whole family. They all get caught up in the same type of prideful entitlement attitude. And there's a very important lesson in all of this for us, friends. And that's this, we are most vulnerable to becoming overly inflated with pride and and adapting this entitlement mentality immediately after a moment of triumph in which God has shown up and and maybe used us in a a mighty way. Think about this, when when was Peter most harshly rebuked by Jesus? I would say it would probably be in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus asks his disciples, you know, who who do you say I am? And, And Peter blurts out the answer. He triumphantly declares, you are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. And moments later, when Jesus tells them that he's going to have to suffer, Peter rebukes Jesus. Right afterwards, he rebukes Jesus. And of course, then Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter right back saying, get behind me, Satan. Possibly the strongest rebuke in the entire Bible. 
a moment of victory followed by a complete and total failure. Or how about when Peter stepped out of the boat to walk on the water with Jesus? He gets out, he's keeping his eyes on Jesus, his his concentration is on Jesus, he walks on the water with Jesus, and suddenly Peter gets distracted. He gets a little bit confident, He, he lets his guard down, he looks down and he realizes he's defying the laws of nature, which is by definition what a miracle is, and he sinks like a rock. All of a sudden the laws of nature kick in full force. A moment of victory followed by a moment of total and complete failure. You see, in those moments of triumph that we will experience from time to time, the temptation, while we're on the peak of the mountain, is to let our guard down. Giving ourselves maybe a little bit too much credit when it would be wise to diligently keep our guard up the most when we're feeling victorious. How do we do that? It starts with staying humble. We just decide. We we know that all the glory belongs to God. All the credit goes to God. All of it. We realize that we're just a vessel. God doesn't need us, but He chose us and He used us, not because we are deserving of it, but purely because of His grace. And we keep in mind that Jesus was absolutely spot on when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Not, not, not a few things. You know, not, not, you know, well, you could probably do the smaller things, but the bigger things, you know, why don't you come and get me? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, if Jesus told us that apart from him, we can do nothing, what do you think one of the worst mistakes we can make might be? Uh, there are a lot of answers for that, I know. Uh, But one thing that we can know in light of what Jesus says here is that one of the worst things that we could possibly do is try to make something happen without him. That is to feel so good about ourselves in a moment of victory that we feel like we can do it again. God, you just stay here. I'm on my own this time. That's a temptation. That's a very real temptation. One of the slogans of the secular business world is stay hungry, but ours should be stay humble. Stay humble. Apart from Jesus, we can't do anything. How is it possible for Gideon to to know intellectually, to know in, in his mind that God alone reigns sovereignly over his people as king, and yet to immediately turn around and start acting like one? Because he's got a disconnect between his mind knowledge, his intellectual knowledge, and his heart knowledge. How do we avoid the same thing happening to us? By saturating ourselves with the gospel, studying God's word regularly, worshiping in fellowship with other Christians regularly, praying regularly, examining our own lives regularly, confessing our sins and repenting of them regularly. We all have to make sure that we are acting in accordance with what we profess to believe Because if we're not, there's a disconnect. And there's something of a disconnect for all of us because we all sin. But we want that gap to be really, really small. And when we see it, you know, big, we want to bring it it down. This is how we stay humble and healthy. We exercise the spiritual disciplines. 
So don't sabotage your walk with God. Don't sabotage your walk with the Lord by becoming prideful in a victorious moment and feeling like you could just do it independently. The glory and the honor is his, so walk humbly before him. Speaking of Peter, he was this proud, brash guy. You know, he was super, I don't even know if you could say he's rough around the edges. He's just rough all over. But he would learn his lesson, and he would understand how important humility is. 30 or 40 years later, he'd write this in 1 Peter. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, it's interesting to me anyway that Peter was specifically addressing church leaders in the context of this verse. Although the same principle applies to all of God's people, and Gideon is a prime example of why we all must remain humble. Charles Spurgeon did a lot of work training up men to go into the ministry, and he once issued a warning to to his students saying this, don't go into ministry to save your soul. You see, he knew that it is such a temptation to use ministry, any type of ministry, whether you're a pastor or a lay leader or, or whatever, it's, it's always a temptation to use ministry as a means of influencing others, of winning honor in the, in the eyes of men for ourselves, rather than using our position to humbly serve the God who's called us into ministry. And of course, like Gideon, we know intellectually what the right answer is. We know intellectually that that God is the one who deserves all the glory. We know that intellectually, but it is really easy for anyone, leaders and ministry included, to develop something of a Messiah complex. And that's what's happened to Gideon. Let's continue. Verse 28. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Now, if we were reading the other, the previous stories of the judges, we'd look at this and say, um, you know, this looks like this would be where the story of Gideon ends. With previous judges, the author would tell us, you know, kind of a, a rough outline of the story, and then they'd tell us how long there was peace in the land. But here, we don't hear. We don't, in the previous ones, we don't hear anything about you know, what happened after that. But here it's an exception. We don't stop here. The story doesn't stop here. It doesn't end here. Perhaps because this isn't real peace that we're talking about. Instead, we continue to see where Gideon goes from here. Look in verses 29 and 30. Jerubal, remember, he got that name when he tore down the altar to Baal in Ophrah. Jerubal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives, and his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. Just when it seemed like Gideon's life couldn't spiral any more out of control, we learn that he becomes a polygamist. How ironic, tragic, that here's Israel worshiping multiple gods, and here's their leader with multiple wives. Now, I have to say first uh, that there are those who are in favor of, of polygamy, and they'll, they'll look at something like this and they'll say, See, the Bible approves of polygamy. Where? Gideon's in sin here. 
This isn't with the approval of God. This isn't with the blessing of God. This is getting abusing a blessing, abusing uh, the position and, and the, the esteem that he has before people. The author here is giving us a description of what Gideon is doing. He's not giving us a prescription for everybody else. There's a big difference between a description and a prescription. The Bible never, ever condones polygamy, even though there are people who will say it does. And believe me, in five years, this is going to be a major issue in this country. Polygamy is going to be a major issue. It already is. It's already becoming a real thing. In five years, it's going to be out of control. But what we see here is that Gideon is the first judge to be remembered for going that route. Gideon was the first judge to turn the sword on his fellow countrymen. He was the first judge to torture his fellow countrymen. He was the first judge to, be, to demand that he be treated like a king. And now we see that he was the first to be remembered for having multiple wives. How can you expect the people to be faithful when the leader that they look up to isn't faithful? Gideon reaches the point where he feels like he is his own God. He lives by his rules. Nobody tells him what to do. Not God. Not anybody. Pride. Entitlement. What a recipe for complete disaster. You know, until this, uh, until this story, until this chapter, the cycle has remained similar for Israel. Number one, they, they sin against God and turn their hearts to false gods. Then God responds to that by handing them over to oppression by the people of the nations that they're surrounded by. They cry out to God after X number of years of oppression. He raises up a judge who delivers them and restores peace in the land as the judge promotes godly living. The end, and the, the land has peace for X number of years. But with this, we see that the cycle's different. We see that there's not really any peace, and Gideon is certainly not promoting godly living. This is a major black eye in Israel's history. The peace that they have at this time, the rest that the land might have at this time, is, not, is just a peace with other nations. It's not a peace with God. The war against God is raging on in their hearts. Let's finish it up, Uh, verses 32 to 35. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. And as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berith their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Never think, it'll be tempting, but never think that just because things seem to be going smoothly in your life. Things seem to be going your way in life. Things seem to be good in life. Never think that just because things are good, everything with God must be good. Gideon lived what might seem like a good, long life, and apparently he died a peaceful death as opposed to dying in war, but his life was the picture, was this picture of the flesh just getting the best of us. 
He apparently did repent at some point. We don't get to find out when. We don't get to find out uh, how difficult it was for him. We don't get to find out how extensive his repentance was. But he is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 in the Faithful Hall of Fame. But he lived this harsh life in opposition of God. And the problem was revealed in the middle of our passage today. The people wanted to be just like the world. God's people wanted to be just like the world, and Gideon was no exception. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the biggest temptations and most dangerous traps that we as Christians are tempted to fall into even today. You know, we see our neighbors getting rich, and we want to be rich too. We see our neighbors living really comfortable lives, and we want to live comfortable lives too. But God has called us to be different. That's not saying that you can't be rich. It's not saying that you can't uh, live in comfort. But you shouldn't want those things because your neighbor wants them. You should receive those things from God and be content with what you have. God has called us to be different. We're called to be a people who live for him. Whereas our neighbors, the people that we're surrounded by, they're living for themselves. Now, if they're living for themselves and we're living for God, you're going to find huge differences. We should be walking humbly before God because we're called to live for him. While Gideon was saved, and he's in Hebrews chapter 11, think about his legacy for a second. How many of his children were saved? How many of his fellow Israelites were led to repentance? All we know is that they were ready to go right back to worshiping the Baals the second he died. Tragically and ironically, their new god, Baal Barith, means literally God of the covenant. They had hated They had forsaken and turned their hearts away from the God who had the sovereign ability to uphold the covenant that he established with them through Moses. But this God, Baal Barith, he offers them something that they wanted. We're not exactly sure what. He offers them some type of covenant, but he doesn't have the power to uphold a single promise that he might make. The truth is, they were worshiping this false God well before Gideon even died. And while Gideon was a servant who wanted to be a king, who coveted kingship. He once again points us to Jesus, the sovereign king who became a servant. Ah, That's a twist. He points us to a king who became a servant, who humbly came down, humbling himself, taking on flesh, stepping down from his throne in heaven in order to redeem for himself a people. Jesus taught us a better way, saying, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that he did. He humbly laid down his life as a ransom so that whoever would call on his name, whoever would believe in him and the sufficiency of his work on the cross for their salvation would be saved. Not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, not because we're even close to being good enough, but because we're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The glory is God's alone. And Gideon points us to our need for a deliverer 
who would fit that profile. And of course, that deliverer is found only in Jesus. All of the scriptures, even this passage, this passage that gives the account of this sinful man, all of the scriptures point to him, point to Jesus. Pride led to Gideon's spiritual decline, his spiritual downfall into Israel's as well. Humility is the one thing that could have prevented it all. See, we don't need to just recognize sin on an intellectual level. We don't need to just believe in sin as some type of doctrinal truth with our minds. It needs to go further than that. We need to confess. We need to repent. We need to mourn and feel brokenness over the sins that we still need to be delivered from. And that's why we have to absolutely saturate our minds and our hearts with God's word, with the gospel. Only when our hearts are penetrated to the deepest depths will we begin to hate and turn from what is evil, cling to what is good, reject carnal worldliness, and walk humbly before the Lord. If we'll be warriors for the Lord, let us not be proud warriors. Let us be humble warriors for the Lord, boldly following His calling in our lives for His glory and not for ours. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You that the Scriptures all point to You. And how we see our need, Lord, for a deliverer who will be humble, who will teach us to be humble. And so, Lord, I pray that we would look to you and that you would teach us humility. Teach us, Lord, to be vigilant and to guard our hearts, especially in moments of triumph, Lord. May we never think that we could do anything without you. We thank you for loving us so much that you would Give your life to save us. And I pray, Lord, that as we contemplate, as we meditate on these scriptures, that your word, that the gospel would penetrate our hearts even further, that we would turn our hearts even more to you. Teach us, Lord, to turn our hearts from what is evil and to cling to what is good. Teach us to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives. We thank you for sending him in order to teach us, in order to convict us. I pray, Lord, that we would be humble, quick to confess, quick to repent from our sins. Because we belong to you. We love you. Teach us to live. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. 
Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.